And so I welcome you in the name of Christ our King. And I um, just want to encourage you to persevere because we've not gotten to the sermon yet. <laughs> this morning we'll be, we will be looking uh, together, turning our attentions again to John chapter 2. So please turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and I will be reading verses 13 through 25. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that any should testify of of man, for he knew what was in man. Amen. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, as we draw near to you this morning, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us to understand the significance and the application uh, of this particular text. Be here by your spirit, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus entered the court of the Gentiles during the Passover. Now, every male Jew had to attend this feast, and there are two others, which every year filled the temple precinct. The Passover is very critical to the Gospel of John. It really frames the entire Gospel. There are three Passovers that are uh, uh, given to us 
in this gospel. This is the first. Jesus attends this one. The second, he does not attend. That's recorded for us in John chapter 6, verse 4. And the reason he doesn't attend that one is because the Jews wanted to kill him. See that in chapter 7, verse 1. And then the third is his triumphal entry. Now, Jesus cleanses the temple two times. At the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. Together with the final Passover, this Passover frames the entire ministry of Jesus. Particularly in the Gospel of John, this is something that's very important, where as he begins his ministry, and John the the Baptist was just declaring that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he comes to the Passover feast. And as he is going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world, he attends to the Passover feast. Very important. Not only do they frame the gospel, but this chapter, if you were paying attention, is framed by the Passover itself. Because in verse 33, excuse me, 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, same time frame, but the uh, Passover really frames the context here. Everything that occurs in these verses occurred during this first Passover. And if you remember the Passover commemorated the deliverance of the Jewish people from Egyptian bondage. In Exodus chapter 12, the exhortation to the people to do this perpetually is given. Now, it's very important for us to understand exactly what Jesus is doing. Why is Jesus cleansing the temple? What is going on here? Last week we saw from John chapter 2, that Jesus comes to a celebration. And the Jewish leadership had bound the people up in so much ritual that even a wedding, a place of joy and, and gladness, was overshadowed almost by these huge pots of water that Jesus turned to wine. And now, at the temple, the place where God is to be worshipped, Jesus comes in, and what does he find? In essence, he, he finds a bazaar, a flea market. People are making a business out of worship. Now, there had been established near the Mount of Olives a place where the people could have gone and bought sheep and cattle, salt, grain, wine, whatever they needed for the worship of God as the numbers are estimated, at least a million people would flood into the temple and into this area during uh, the Passover. And as they were coming from foreign lands, not only did they, 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 there was no way that they would be able to travel with their sacrifices, the things they were going to offer, but they would travel with currency, and that currency had to be changed to Jewish currency so that they could use in the temple. So there were also money changers. So the fact that these things are present doesn't necessarily indicate that there was something wrong. Yet it's their location. It's their location. Right there in the temple, 
more than likely in the court of the Gentiles, you have sheep and oxen and dove and money changers and hundreds of thousands of people are trafficking in and out of this area trying to buy and disturbing the worship of God. Now, what we have to see here, of course, it's, this is closely tied to the second time Jesus cleanses the temple. Listen to his words here in verse 16. Verse 16. Jesus says, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And that was the issue. It was the location, what they were doing in the temple of God. What they were doing in the temple of God. Now, if we turn to Mark, turn to Mark with me, and Mark will see the second time Jesus cleanses the temple. Mark chapter 12. Excuse me, 11, verse uh, 15. Mark 11, verse 15. This is the second time. So when they came to Jerusalem, then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then... He taught, saying to them, it is, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And even here the emphasis is on the place. What was the place intended to be? It's intended to be a house of prayer for all nations. And he's standing in the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles would have been traveling from far distance to come into God's house to worship. And would, it, would there be a solemn assembly? Oh, there'd be all kinds of animals and, and people hustling and, and trying to sell wares. And, hey, I got coins over here. Get your coins and get your lambs half off. A huge disruption. Ultimately, ultimately, this is the leaven of the Pharisees. This is the leaven of the Pharisees. And Jesus tells his disciples to beware of this leaven, their evil and wicked influence. Now, if you remember the background to the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, verses, let's turn there. Exodus chapter 12, look at verses 14 through 17. I think this is important. Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. Now, this is uh, the institution and instruction 12, 14. And Moses, giving instruction through the Lord, writes, For this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. 
You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And it's really this evil influence that Jesus wants to drive out. He says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. And who does he drive out? Well, he's not really he's necessarily driving out the crowds of people. It's those who are selling. Those who are making a living, an exorbitant living, through the worship of God. Unjust and righteous giving. Now look at how Paul... I want, uh, I want to prove the point. Look at 1 Corinthians. Look at Paul's instruction here in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6, 6 through 10, that Paul has this same context in mind of the, of the Passover and of leaven, and he instructs the church at Corinth this way. 5, verse 6. For, excuse me, your glorying is not good. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral of this world or the covetous or the extortioner or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written that to you not to keep company with anyone named the brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. And here Jesus, the the, right, the, the leaven that he says that we need to get out, right, is described by these sins, these evil influences. What, what, what's in here? covetousness, extortion. These were the things that were going on. It was, it was because of covetousness that they had turned the temple precinct into a place of business, right? So if they're selling sheep over there, uh, you know, 10 miles away for $25 a sheep, when you get here, well, you don't have to carry the sheep so far. And here, well, you know, it's $50 for a sheep. And actually, you bought that sheep for $25? Yeah, we're not going to be able to offer that sheep. It's, it, it looks a little mangy. It's not right. It's blemished. But I got this other one over here that you can take with you. Here you go. And what Jesus is doing is he is driving out this evil influence. A.W. Pink writes, The feast of the Passover was at hand, when all leaven must be removed from Israel's dwellings. And there is the temple where the cattle dealers and money changers 
actuated by covetousness and practicing extortion. What horrible desecration was this? Leaven in the temple of God. Turn back to John chapter 2. So this was no small thing. In Zechariah, we're reminded that the Lord will suddenly come, excuse me, in Malachi. We're reminded that the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. And it's a, it's a beautiful passage, and it's a text that we've actually looked at. It's a passage that ties the ministry of John the Baptist with the coming of Christ. It's in Malachi chapter 3. Verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare my way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and a launder's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. And here in Malachi, you have John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord to come into his temple and to purify the worship of God. That is exactly what is happening here. Jesus comes now, and he is setting things right, as he says, in his Father's house. The term that's used here for temple is used to describe really the entire complex, the, the, the entire area. In verses 19, 20, and 21, Jesus will use a different word, which literally means the dwelling place of God. And what we have to remember that in, so uh, that's just a little extra, keep that in your pocket. So when we get to 19, 20, and 21, because Jesus is saying something very important in those verses. The temple, we have to remember, is the place, as one author puts it, of conflict in this gospel. Here in this section, Jesus' dignity is going to be assaulted. In verses, in John chapter 2, if uh, um, excuse me, the dignity of God is assaulted. Because um, the, the, the place of worship is now turned into a place of profit. And Jesus is indignant. Later in the temple, this is where he's going to be betrayed. In John, We see, find this in John 5.14. And in the temple is where he's going to encounter those who want to kill him. That's in John chapter 8.59. Although he teaches openly multiple times in John 7, John 18, and even here, his teaching always involves conflict in the temple. Whenever Jesus is in the temple, whenever Jesus is with the religious leader, at some point or another, conflict arises. They hate this man. The place that was intended to be the place where man would meet with God and worship God. When God enters his temple, they resist him. 
This is, uh, of course, Jesus wonderfully depicts this in the book of Luke when he talks about his vineyard and when the husbandman sends his son. Maybe they'll listen to my son. And what do they do with him? They kill him. But we have to remember, in a while, Jesus is going to declare, he's going to make it very clear that he is the foundation stone of a new temple that God is building, that God begins to build in his ministry, and in the coming of the Spirit, then God starts to make spiritual stones, and he builds a house for himself, a true temple, a true place of worship. We cannot forget these words. Judgment begins at God's house. This is where God begins to do business. He begins to do business in his house. And today, his house isn't located in Israel, in the land. His house is the church. Repeatedly throughout the New Testament, we can multiply examples in Ephesians, in the book of Hebrews, in 1 Peter, in Jesus' own words, and throughout the book of Acts. We have to remember that when we are worshiping God, we must worship God according to His Word. As we saw a few weeks ago in our Sunday school class, we must worship God in spirit and in truth. Remember, I'm certain that at some point there was rationalization in the temple. We need sacrifices and we need Jewish currency to transact business. What a, what a better place. The courts are huge. I mean, it's broad, it's open, and as people are rushing in, what convenience. It's excellent. This is the place to set things up. But no. But no. You see, the contrast Jesus picks up here. In essence, he says, you've made my father's house, a place of business. Yet this is my father's house. That's the issue. In Isaiah 56, 7 is where you have that wonderful text that, uh, let's turn there. In Isaiah 56, 7, where the Lord's house is to be a house of prayer. Verse 6 And all of these foreigners are coming, right? You have men, you have women who are uh, God-fearers, many who had been converted to God or had an interest in the God of Israel, and now they're coming to the temple, to the place on earth where God would meet with man, and what do they see? The same kind of sin and wickedness they would find in pagan temples. Yet listen to what God says in Isaiah 56, beginning at verse 6. Also the sons of the foreigner who joined themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds to my covenant... Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted at my altar. 
For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. And these are the exact words of Jesus in John chapter 10 where he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They are the Gentiles. And that, that was God's, God's desire was, to be, was for his glory to be spread throughout the entire world. And the temple was this central place. It was the meeting place of God with man. And it had been corrupted. Images of, of uh, Ezekiel and the wickedness that had been going on in the temple come to mind. You see, God does not see things the way that we do. What we count harmless can be absolutely offensive to God. We have to be certain that we are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Look at Jeremiah 19. And Jeremiah also picks up on a very similar point. And it is this point, this, the importance of, of right worship. Jeremiah 19, beginning at verse 10. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. And, and here what we're going to have is a sign, the sign of a broken flask. And this, this sign is going to communicate something to the people. As Jesus' temple cleansing is intended to communicate something to the people. Let's look at the illustration here. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, even so I will break this people in this city as one breaks the potter's vessel, which cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Topheth till there is no place to bury. Thus I will do to this place, says the Lord, and to its inhabitants, and make this city like Topheth. What God is doing is he, he is showing in coming to the temple, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, he is coming to the temple. And by his act of cleansing the temple, he is illustrating that those who are worshiping here are not worshiping God. Those who are worshiping here are not worshiping God. And the disciples eventually understand what Jesus is doing. Verse 17. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's an, that's an aside, really. That's John. Right? John is there with Jesus and they, 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 they watch this, and to them, it may not have been clear at that very moment what Jesus was doing. It may not have been clear. But after Jesus was raised from the dead, wait a minute. That's what he was doing in the temple. Remember, Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, your house is left to you desolate. 
Jesus now, as his ministry begins publicly, he is making it very clear that the old has passed away and the new has come. Jesus comes to establish right worship. And this zeal, is, it's, it's, when we think of zeal in the Bible, who, who do you think of? I think of Phineas, right? What does Phineas do? He grabs a javelin. And what does he do to those two who are sinning? To the Jewish man who walks this uh, Canaanite unbeliever through the camp and brings her to sleep with her. What does he do? He takes a javelin and he stabs him and her through their abdomen. That is zeal for God's house. That's in Numbers 25, 11. The, the zeal of the Lord for his house, should, it, it should be something that we have, each and every one of us. There should be a desire for God to be worshipped rightly in the church. Now, the form and the structure may look different in each church. And particularly, though, what we are called to, and now here I'm speaking to the men in this church, is not to allow the worship of God to be denigrated because we are weak and passive when we don't have to be. We, we don't have to be weak and passive when things are not going right in the church. We don't have to be the kind of men who do water cooler conversations, right? Two or three of the guys in the church, man, I really don't like how such and such a person is doing this and that and the third, but you don't do anything. That pacifies the conscience. But what God calls us to do is to be zealous for his worship. Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, and, and, and this is very interesting because he, is, he uses this Passover context to exhort them to be holy in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's what we're called to. It's not about being loud, disrespectful, or boisterous, but it's about standing up and being men and saying not in God's house. We will not have disorder and false worship. No. Zeal for God's house should eat us up. It should be constant in our prayers. It should be often in our mind. And it should be something that is very dear to our hearts. See, loving God is not feminine. It's not. You see, beards, hunting, beer, tattoos, that's not masculine. You see, that those are not masculine traits. A man who serves God will be masculine because he will not fear man, he will fear God. And he will do those things that are appropriate for the worship of God. And you see, many may ask themselves, why aren't there more men in the church? Because the men in the church are not acting like men. But God calls us to be men who have a zeal, who burn for God. In a very right sense, Jesus was a zealot. 
He loved his God, and he would not allow the place of worship to be trampled under the foot of ungodly men. Christ was eaten up by zeal. And what's important here is that this passage is from Psalm 69. Zeal for your, God, for your house has eaten me up. Let's turn to Psalm 69. It's an important psalm because multiple verses from this psalm are used to describe the life of Christ. Yet many who read it would not say it's a messianic psalm to, the, to, to their fault because it truly is. Because messianic psalms aren't only prophetic, but they are also typological. The entire Bible is about Christ. Therefore, not only uh, instances, institutions, but even individuals in the Bible foreshadow and typify the coming of the Savior. So in Psalm 69, we have a Psalm of David. And in this psalm, David, the king of Israel, he is eaten up. He is praying for relief because of his adversaries, those who hate him. And in Psalm 69, you have this urgent plea in prayer. And he cries out in verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. And then in verse 6, he says, Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake, I have borne reproach and shame has covered my face. You see, the psalmist was put to shame because of his zeal for God. So Jesus is put to shame by the religious leaders because of his zeal for God. Now, in the eyes of men, of course, because his, apostle, the, his disciple has to add that later we understood that he was fulfilling the scripture. But in time, we hadn't seen it. What we saw is he came in here, flipped over the tables, and they challenged him. And they did it with great ease. Although what's interesting is that he wasn't restrained. There are hundreds of thousands of people inside the temple court, and it is very clear that after he makes that whip of cords, he drives everybody out of there. There was a ruckus. It was a kerfluffle. And Jesus cleanses the temple. Yet the religious leaders, well, who is he? He's the son of a carpenter, right? He's the illegitimate son of Mary. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. What do his brothers say in chapter 7? Why don't you go up to the temple and do some parlor tricks? Because they did not believe in him. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And this is what, this is what we're afraid of. 
And I can include myself. This is what men are afraid of. That we'll stand up for God and people will reproach us. Hey, you're just so stupid. But you, you, uh, you, know, you follow Jesus? Oh, that's so corny, right? Or whatever they say to you, you know? Whatever it is. But when the reproaches fall on Jesus, what does he do? It fires him up. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When men discount God, it feels like they're discounting me, and I'm not going to stand for it, particularly in God's house. And this is what Jesus is communicating. Jesus is communicating what it, what it means to be a true Christian. This applies to women also, of course. Zeal for the Lord's house. You, you should be like Jael, right? You use Jael, right? Driving spears into the heads of God's enemies, right? Here, have some milk. Lay down. You're tired. Right? That should be the heart and desire, right? To, to magnify and glorify God. We gather together. This is not a show. This is not a performance. Our intention is to worship God. And that is what Jesus comes to do. God comes to show that this old way of worshiping God is done for. In AD 70, as he promised, that temple was absolutely destroyed. But in AD, he rose from the grave. The body of his temple was not destroyed, will never be destroyed. And it is the true temple of God. So next week, we'll pick up on verse 13. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity of gathering together, Lord, with your people to worship you in your house. Help us, Lord. May the zeal of the Lord fire up our hearts to worship you as we ought, Lord. May we never become passive and weak in our desire to honor you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Please stand and sing with me.